This is just the first of what will be a number of milestones. Maybe it isn't really smart to run our business with zero cash and zero inventory on hand. I don't know about you, but I have a hard time imagining that Washington, D.C., you know, when they're getting used to spending $5 trillion of our money, they're not going back to single-digit trillion-dollar peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, you know? I'm sorry, I just dropped that whole bomb. Oh, no. <laughs> Even though the world finds itself in various states of lockdown, the wheels of the global economic machine continue to turn, albeit at an ever-slowing rate. In this series of conversations, I'm joined by some of the best and brightest minds it's been my pleasure to befriend over the last 35 years to try and gain some insight as to what we can expect the coming months to bring. Will equity and bond markets bounce back? Does a blizzard of multi-trillion dollar stimulus packages mean that central banks have finally reached the end of the road? And if so, what happens next? Is the world facing an even greater depression? Or is a return to the inflationary spiral our likely future? From markets to mortgages, from policy to politics and everything in between, please join me for the 2020 Humanar series. The seventh of my conversations was made possible by the good graces of one of my dearest friends, the wonderful Stephanie Pomboy. Steph and I have known each other for almost a decade now, and I can say without exaggeration that I've walked away a better and smarter human being every time I've had the chance to spend some time in her company. Whether I've had a question about corporate debt markets, the inner workings of the Fed or the Treasury, the state of the pension industry, or even the name of the Dead Kennedys' second album, Steph has had the answer for me and given me context around it that I simply haven't found elsewhere. Without her, my own readers would be much worse off. So please welcome the human ray of sunshine. That is my friend, Steph Pomboy. Oh, yeah. How are you? I'm dandy. How are you? Dandy, I'm okay. I'm okay. It's an uh, interesting time. I, I probably owe you an apology because having asked you to do this, I can't for the life of me think of anything to talk about. It's, uh, yeah, it's I know. nothing going on. Exactly. It's a snooze fest these days. Oh, my God. the truth. <laughs> now look, you and I, you and I had a chat. Um, God, it seems like a lifetime ago, but I think it was Monday. Yeah. Talking about what the Fed were going to do and what, yeah, you know, what the, the ridiculous things they might finally decide they'd go go so far as doing. And we both kind of laughed and thought how preposterous it all was. And then between then and now, yeah. they've done just about all of it. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> I, look, I think the the best place to start is obviously going to be the stuff they've done. Like this week, let's just talk about this week. Forget right, the last right. 10 years. Let's uh, stick to this week. What do you make of it all? Well, it's funny. When we chatted on Monday, um, I was lamenting the fact that they were uh, expressly avoiding backstopping the junk market because, <laughs> you know, that's off limits. Uh, and you and I were talking about how if they didn't do something to support that market, then basically, you know, all their efforts were going to come to naught. So lo and behold... I guess maybe they eavesdropped on our conversation. What a waste of time that would have been for I, <laughs> Oh, man. So um, here we are. And uh, I guess not a moment too soon uh, because the downgrades were coming fast and furious in the corporate yeah. space, um, not surprisingly, given the degradation of corporate balance sheets we've seen over the last decade. 
Um, so, you know, I think I sent you that chart on, I was tracking these corporate downgrades and I only started in February with, you, uh, you did send me this chart. Let me see if I can put it up for people. Hold on okay. one second. I'll talk while you search for it. You talk, I'll find the slide. Here we go. It's <laughs> um, one of these, I'm pretty sure. I only started tracking these downgrades at the beginning Here we go, this of one, right? That's the one. Um, and at the time, so that's two months ago now, uh, the total number of downgrades at the time was 80. Um, I have to update this every day and rescale the left axis. <laughs> um, so as of yesterday's close, that 80 tally back in February had risen to 1,044 uh, in terms of number of issues that have been downgraded just in two months' time. And I've denoted on there, as you can see, um, March 23rd, because that's the date um, that the Fed has sort of drawn the line in the sand um, about uh, the purchases it's going to make of junk-rated yeah. debt have to be um, issues that were investment grade prior to that date. So anything that's lost its investment grade status after that. This chart, just to be clear though, is number of issues. Um, I also sent you a chart of fallen angels. So that gets to the actual um, yes, you did. Hold on. downgrades. Too. Here we go. So there we go. So, you know, we went from nine basically to 21 in that period post March 22nd. Essentially, I think what the Fed obviously is trying to do is say, look, these companies by no fault of their own are being downgraded. It's just a function of the virus um, that put them in this situation where they, you know, can are, are having compromised financial situation. Um, but so uh, I guess, you know, looking at it, you can see why they acted uh, the way they did because they see you know, this fallen angel thing right now, we're only at 21 companies, but you know, that list is going to get larger and larger. So essentially, yeah. I think what they did on Friday was to ring fence that triple B uh, segment of the investment grade market, which is massive. It's the lion's share of the market now. Um, it's, you know, over 3 trillion in debt. Um, they're kind of uh, quarantining, let's say, that segment yeah. of the market. Um, so that it doesn't really um, cause distress elsewhere. But, you know, the thing that I puzzle about is that they're still not buying junk debt. You know, everyone who was junk before March 22nd is on their own. Uh, right. So and there was plenty of those. And there was plenty of those. So we have, I think, 2.6 trillion in speculative grade debt between junk and, and levered loans and whatnot. Um, and then a massive amount of debt is rolling. So, you know, we know these junk companies are going to start to default. And I guess what I struggle with is even after they've ring fenced that triple B segment, don't the woes in the junk area, the market start to infect the rest of the credit market? I mean, it's hard for me to imagine that you would see a cascade of defaults and junk, and it wouldn't have any knock-on consequences to the rest of the market. At a minimum, it's going to make the Fed's efforts, you know, a little bit more challenging, especially since the size of the vehicle that they set up on 
uh, yesterday. Yesterday. Or, yeah. <laughs> yesterday. <laughs> oh my God. Um, you know, is at its maximum will be seven hundred and fifty billion. Again, you know the well, for now. Right. Exactly. So. I think that's the theme I keep coming back to with every conversation you and I have about this stuff is that it's good till canceled. You know, this is the starting, <laughs> this is the opening ante. Um, and for now, they're only buying uh, junk rated debt that has just recently become junk um, as opposed to, you know, having been besmirched for a long time. Um, and right now it's just 750 billion, but obviously you know, this is going to increase in size and scope, I think, as we... Well, it has to, right? I mean, it has to. I mean, you have, to, you have that great phrase with the pre-junk, I think you call it, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, the triple B segment, yeah, I've always yeah. described as pre-junk. And now I guess the Fed is trying to foil me from using that term again by precluding it from becoming... But, but um, can, can we... Let's, let's, be, let's play devil's advocate here. It, you could actually justify what they did yesterday in some way, right? I understand what they were trying to do. Um, the problem, I guess, becomes the way they do it. Uh, I think, I think, as I remember, they're now allowed to buy things like HYG and JNK. Is that right? I mean, I saw the massive spikes in both of those ETFs yesterday. Yes. Um, that, to me, creates more problems just because of this liquidity mismatch Dismatch. between the underlying thing. Yes. Yeah, so I mean, just your thoughts on that, because that, that surprised me as the way they decided to do it. Yeah. I mean, I guess I think they're almost trying to play that con game of, you know, we, if we can instill the confidence in the um, maintaining liquidity in those vehicles, the ETF, the passive, um, then maybe no one will pay attention to the fact that there's nothing going on, you know, there's no liquidity whatsoever in the underlying securities and any issues there will be, again, kind of quarantined in a way. Um, the other thing is that, as I read it, the ETF um, purchases that they make are, I think they use the word, predominantly investment grade. And then whatever's left over, I think they even used a phrase like Correct. that, like whatever's that left exactly over. What I don't, I don't know, left over after what, you know, what's, how are you determining how much is going to go to investment grade versus junk? But this is another one of those areas where good till canceled, you know, they can yeah. uh, make it the lion's share of it uh, high yield. Um, and then on the ratings thing, they also had a little um, caveat at the end of their description of how uh, they would only be buying paper that had been downgraded to junk after March 22nd. And then, uh, you know, you had to have been downgraded to that level, but only to the very top rung of the junk level. Right. So that whole, right. So the, everything beneath that. And then uh, that had to be the assessment of at least two of the ratings agencies. Um, and then at the very end of that section, they say, um, but ratings are subject to the approval of the Fed. Or so basically, oh, I, did, I missed that. Yeah. So, I mean, is it so hard to imagine that maybe they would say, no, actually, we think this should be an investment grade. <laughs> Who knows? Anyway. But it, it is. I mean, it, it's, it's truly extraordinary. I mean, I, it, 
everything that's happening here, we'll, we'll get to where we, I know we both see this going ultimately yeah. in the same direction, right? I mean, and, 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 and with every day that passes, that path becomes clearer and clearer. I mean, but do you, when you look at what the Fed are doing, um, do you see any way they could have done this differently? Because I'm struggling to find, I mean, apart from the obvious, which is allow market forces to assert themselves and just be there right, to pick right. up the pieces and be the lender of last resort against good collateral. God forbid that should ever happen. Right, right. But in the spot they're in now, do you do you see that they're doing the only thing they can or are there other things you think they could have done? No, I mean, I think I agree with you. I think they're doing the obvious things to be done. Um, and I think, you know, they're trying to, as um, frantic and massive as these programs, you know, as quickly as they're coming, um, yeah. I feel like they are really trying to chip away at it, you know, like this conversation about junk. And they've been very circumspect about getting involved in that segment of the market at all. And now they've opened the door to it and they'll open it a little wider and a little wider. So, um, I think that, uh, they, yeah, I agree with you. They're doing the things that they can obviously do. And then they step their foot in an area and try to get everyone acclimated with the idea that they're going to do that. And then they can go and expand and build on it. Um, so I definitely think this, what we saw on Thursday, is the opening ante in yeah. you know, what will become a much larger program. They'll go back to the well and expand that 750 <laughs> Many times. Well, they'll have to, right? 750 just doesn't do it. I mean, I, I don't understand in this in this time of bazookas why they why they do things like that, right? They know that I mean, Draghi, it was whatever it takes. It was two trillion the other day, two trillion the week up. Why 750 right. billion for? It just doesn't make it. That's the only thing that I just wonder what they're thinking because it's like we know that's not going to do it. Yeah, I wonder if any of it is the. Um, the political issue of appearing to be kowtowing to the administration. I don't know to what extent that Maybe. Powell still has that thought in his head at all, although he never really seemed to be too concerned about that. Um, so, I don't well, know. I, you know, I, I, saw, I saw an amazing chart yesterday, which if I had the presence of mind, I would have dug out, but it showed basically the difference between if you, from the beginning of the year, so go back to January 1, if you bought the open and sold the close versus selling the close, so, sorry, versus buying the clothes and selling the next day's open. So basically, if you you, know, you buy the open, sell the clothes, you're getting all the emergency Fed interactions. Uh -huh. you're, 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 taking, you're taking that on your, on your balance sheet. If you do the other stuff, you're just exposed to the rumors. If you buy the clothes and sell the open, you're down 20% this year. If you just bought every day's open and sold the clothes, you're up 10%. <laughs> I mean, the Fed put is there. That's it, right? That's it. The, yeah. the bad news happens overnight. They come in in the morning. Some crazy program, market rallies on the back of it, and then we go back to the back to the lows. Now, talking about back to the lows, you you tweeted yesterday about the market revisiting the lows. Um, you know, there's a lot of people talking about, oh, we think the bottom's in, and this is going to do right. it. I, I mean, I, I think I think I'm in your camp, but I'm going to find out now because I'm going to get you to expand on that. Talk about what you wrote and, and what you meant by it. Well, I guess you know, I see this current situation as a two-phase process. We're going to get through the coronavirus phase with the impact on the economy and on the markets. And then there'll be a period, and I feel like we're starting to get to that place, or we have been for the last week, but it'll build, of 
anticipation of getting out of it. And, you know, we've now put a lot of policies into place that should support the economy. Um, and the markets start to look forward and say, all right, um, you know, at the end of the month, we're going to start to open some sectors of the economy. Um, and so they're discounting that already. And that, you know, we've seen as many forecasts as I have of the V-shaped recovery and whatnot. If you look at estimates for profit growth, they're awful in the next two quarters. And then next year, we're up 20 whatever percent every quarter. Um, so I, I see the markets as uh, coming out of that horrible crash from the coronavirus crisis to kind of a sense of euphoria almost that we're coming out of it. And they get super excited just in time to get hit with the second wave, which is the fallout of the deleveraging of the corporate bubble and just that whole scenario, which while the Fed is trying to backstop it, I think it's too late to, uh, you know, you can't reinflate that bubble as far as I'm concerned. And, and there are a lot of reasons I feel that way that are more uh, longer term. Um, but I believe, so we, in terms of your question about the stock market, I think we're getting into that phase, that era of good feeling coming out of the crisis. And I would not short the market for a while right now. I mean, I think I don't know how long this will run or how uh, dramatic it'll be, but I do think that the market's probably uh, path of least resistance is higher. Um, and once you get people to stop asking, you know, is the bottom in, is the bottom in, that's that's uh, the time when you might want to start to think about, okay, we've, we've reached peak euphoria on this, and now we're going to have to deal with the real issues that were there all along. I mean, before all of this, you and I were keeping ourselves very busy talking about all of the major structural um, long-term fundamental problems yeah. that the U.S. economy faces, and those obviously haven't gone away, um, and they won't go away after we come out of this uh, virus crisis. So. But, but what, what does it take? I mean, if you, if you think about this uh, in terms of that euphoria in the markets, we've seen uh, initial jobless claims for the last three weeks blow every single number we've ever seen in history out of the water. It's clear just how bad this unemployment could be. We've seen estimates of down 30. I mean, the, the investment banks have been jumping over themselves to get the most apocalyptic Q2 right. GDP estimate out. You know, we went from 14% was like, oh my God, we're I think we're at 40% now with one of them, wow. certainly above 30. I, I don't know. But um, the jobs keep getting worse. The unemployment numbers are due on May 8th, I think. What? Why is the market looking through that? Is it just, is it simply this, oh, it'll, it'll bounce back? Because I, I it just common sense tells you that everybody who got laid off is not going to get hired right. once they ring a bell and say the virus is over. What does it take for this market to finally say, okay, we need to price equities and every other kind of corporate credit on future earnings and yeah. future earnings are going to be awful. Yeah. I mean, I could ask the same question and, and have, I mean, to me, it comes back to that question of temporary or permanent. And the idea that we're going to 
bounce out of this and go right back to where we were before. It just seems absolutely ludicrous to me. Um, but I believe that when you look at the market action that you're describing, that's the only explanation is that maybe it's hope springs eternal and this has been so unpleasant that no one wants to contemplate the possibility that when we emerge from it, we're not going back to where we were before. Uh, but it just seems insane to me to imagine that the only difference will be that we wash our hands a little more than we did, you know, a couple of months ago. And one thing that I keep coming back to is after the housing bubble bust, or even before it happened, I was talking about how when it did happen, the behavior of US consumers would change for a generation, just like people who lived through the depression had a different pattern of behavior after that. Um, and for all the chatter about how strong the economy was in the recovery, the one thing that was conspicuous was that households were really trying to save even as asset prices were going to the moon. And you'd never seen a relationship like that before where household net worth was going parabolic and the savings rate was moving up saving out of income. They're not talking about what they were saving in terms of their 401ks. I'm talking about, you know, uh, foregoing consumption, which is remarkable. So we saw a very clear shift in the consumer's behavior after the housing bubble bust. And I just can't imagine that we won't see something like that on the part of the corporate sector, especially when you layer on top all of the issues that we're now exposing about uh, globalization and, you know, having exposure to global supply chains and, you know, th that whole other moving part. It just seems to me that the corporate sector, uh, even with the Fed coming in and backstopping, will have a new behavior where they'll say, you know, maybe it isn't really smart to run our business with zero cash and zero inventory on hand. Perhaps that wasn't, you know, a really sustainable model. Uh, and if you see that shift, then it's, it's very hard to imagine that the economy bounces back to the way it was before. You've got consumers who are still maybe even more so inclined to save after this, not maybe, I'm surely more inclined to save and a corporate sector that's gonna be doing the same, which brings me back to this kind of uninspiring dynamic we have now where the government is the marginal spender of last resort and the Fed is its marginal lender of last resort. And that dynamic that we're watching will continue to be sort of the main framework that we operate in for the next many, many years, I think. So, so how long is it, do you think, until, um... The, the Fed starts buying equities, whether it's through ETFs or because I mean, clearly that's where we're going, right? I mean, do, do, oh, is that going to happen soon or are they going to save that till the very end or does it matter at this point? Wow. I mean, do I want to take an over under on that one? I mean, right now, I mean, obviously I'd say sooner rather than later. Um, but actually I think the answer depends on what the market does. You know, as long as the market behaves like it did last week, then they don't really need to go there. So I believe their actions are going to be dictated by how much pain is felt in the markets. Um, and we'll see. 
what next week brings, but uh, so far it seems like their decision to expand their, their credit market intervention has been sufficient to support stocks. Right. Makes sense because the only thing that stocks, the only thing that was driving stocks higher in the first place was credit financed share buybacks and dividends. So the credit market is really the key to the equity market. And as long as the Fed can, you know, provide some strong support to the credit market, presumably they don't need to come in like the Bank of Japan and, and buy up uh, equities in big order. But Time will tell. <laughs> I mean, yeah, everybody focuses on the on the on the markets, right? They focus on the things they have on their phones, and they look at the Dow and the S and P, and they look at you know the, the high yield ETS. But you know, the stuff you do, look at some of the bigger pictures up behind the scenes. I'm going to bring up some more of your charts, which I just found. I just want you to talk a little bit about them. The, the piece you wrote this week, uh, Trump cards, which I thought was extraordinarily good, even by your standards. I just want to show you a few of those charts, and because some of these charts will really make people think about some of these things. So let me see if I can bring this first one up, which okay. is uh, this one. Okay. You see that? The unemployment rate. Just just talk that talk through that chart because it, it's it's a mind-boggling chart to me. I know it is actually when I did it, I was I noticed after I did this chart, um, let me just explain what it is, but the unemployment rate um, versus the federal deficit relative to GDP, but uh, the, that green line, the deficit line, is inverted. So obviously, as the deficit gets worse, that green line is moving higher. What's interesting, and I realized as I was doing these this chart, was that the right-hand scale and the left-hand scale are identical. They're just inverse. <laughs> so when you sit back and you think about forecasts right now for the St. Louis Fed, for example, forecasts the unemployment rate hitting 32%. Does that mean the deficit's going to hit 32% of GDP? And my mind was blown by that idea. And then I started doing the math. You know, let's see, uh, where are we now? If we, if we actually see the forecast you were talking about earlier, 40% hit 35, whatever crazy number you want to put on it, to GDP, at the same time, the deficit is already over three trillion and they're still talking about another one and a half trillion in infrastructure and all kinds of other stuff. So if you do the math on that, we're at twenty percent now. You know, before any uh major other programs and and uh potential for growth to actually be even weaker longer. So it's not inconceivable that we could be looking at deficit numbers to GDP in excess of 20, 25%, which is just mind boggling. But again, I think the reaction to that would be, ah, it's just temporary. It'll be a couple quarters and then we'll go back to a more normal, uh, you know, where are we? 5% deficit to GDP. And I don't know about you, but I have a hard time imagining that Washington, D.C., I think I said in that piece, you know, when they're getting used to spending $5 trillion of our money, they're not going back to single-digit trillion-dollar peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. You know, they, they, when Washington starts uh, spending at a certain pace, they don't usually uh, go back to their uh, 
you know, flying coach. So I, I think I think the the phrase you use was poor sign politicos. I think <laughs> is that phrase you use, if I, remember, if I remember rightly. But I mean, it, it is. I, I mean, that this the, the piece, and I make no excuses about bringing some more of those charts because it was just filled with just amazing set of charts. This next one here again. I mean, yeah. when you when you look at the the, the federal debt. Um, Talk us through what this the, the the error in judgment that this chart right. explains so beautifully. Well, it is amazing to me. I've been bullish on bonds forever, basically, because of the debt and demographics, which I think are inexorable forces for lower rates, not higher rates. Um, but I never cease to be amazed by the sort of Pavlovian response to increased budget deficits uh, by Wall Street strategists who will say, all right, this is the end of the bull market and bonds. You know, once the government starts to expand its uh, deficits, you want to sell because they're going to be issuing so much more debt that obviously interest rates are going to go higher. And all you have to do is look at this chart to see that the exact opposite is true. Um, and, you know, you can go back through each decade and describe why that it worked out that way. But in general, um, when the government's borrowing the most, it's periods like this where the economy is weak and it needs support. That's not a backdrop. It's generally one that's, you know, filled with rampant inflation and strong growth that would bid yields higher. Um, but most importantly, since that peak in rates uh, in the 80s to present as it's declined, we've had this era of globalization. And that really brings us to the whole topic of where we're ultimately headed here. And that is, you know, we've been able to run massive deficits because the rest of the world was willing to buy our paper because it inured to their benefit. Basically, they were vendor financing U.S. purchases of their export stuff. Um, and that relationship has carried us for a long way and it was a good deal for the U.S. in terms of being able to um, borrow like crazy at you know consistently lower and lower interest rates and what I struggle with now or not with the thing that I think is going to be critical now is if we are in fact reaching the end of this era of globalization and by all accounts it seems like we are um, if we're just going to be having the government be the marginal spender of last resort, is that a compelling backdrop for the rest of the world to be buying our paper anymore? Uh, so I'm sorry, I just dropped that whole bomb. No, no, <laughs> no but you know, it, it's, it's so interesting because one of the questions just came in, I'm gonna read this to you and you'll understand why it, it amused me. Because uh, we're going to get to that in a second, I think. And, and one of the uh, attendees, Kyle, said, I've often speculated that since Trump has a history of bankruptcy, that he might lead a preemptive default. No idea what that could really mean, though. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's funny you mentioned that, because I'm going to keep going through Stephanie's right. slides here. Oh, gosh. Because you know, as we get into some of these ones right. about Treasury holdings, um, that will become clear. And, and, I, and I think it's just it's so important to talk about this, Steph, because you're the only person I've seen who is talking about this stuff. It, it's It's kind of... It's almost too big picture for people who they're just so fixated on either individual stocks or individual markets. The bigger picture seems to be passing people by. The, the, the one macro thing that everybody wants to talk about is the dollar. And we'll definitely get onto that because, again, that's one of the places all this leads. But 
But let, let's talk about the, the treasuries and, and the debt here, because there's a couple of slides here, which again, are just fantastic. Well, this gets back to the point I made earlier about how starting in the 1980s with the globalization, we could rely on foreign vendor financing, basically, and that's what this chart shows so clearly. I mean, it's you can't really decipher which line is which in this chart. It's We've had it really good. Every uh, dollar increase in our debt was matched by an increase in foreign purchases of that paper. So there seemed to be no limit to how much paper we could issue um, in terms of their willingness to to buy it. So, you know, then if you flash forward to the recent period, here we go, uh, this has started to shift, not surprisingly. I mean, obviously everyone right now is focused inward. They're trying to support their own economies. Uh, vendor financing U.S. consumers is the last thing on their mind. And you can see uh, last week we hit this milestone, which I don't think anyone noticed because most people aren't sitting Nobody. around on Friday night doing charts of the Fed custody account. <laughs> so, um, but for the first time, the uh, Fed's own holdings of treasuries eclipsed the amount of treasuries that it holds in custody for foreign central banks. And this is just the first of what will be a number of milestones um, that we will uh, rack up as the Fed pursues all these massive uh, unconventional policies. Um, but I think the message here is clearly, you know, we need to start to think about the implications of being able to rely less on the rest of the world as a source of financing. And again, you come back to who's going to be, who can we rely on? I mean, households are trying to save corporations after this whole disaster one imagines will be trying to save. So, you know, you've got to, uh, unless both households and corporations say, you know, the best vehicle for our saving is U.S. Treasuries, um, we're going to have a problem on our hand. And I don't know, maybe they will. Maybe that'll be the, the great surprise that suddenly here in the U.S. people decide, you know, this is where I want to be. And it could be. That... Color me skeptical. <laughs> I, mean, I, 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 I did used to think that I lived a sad existence, but you putting these together on Friday night, you, you beat me on that. But, um, <laughs> but the, yeah, look, there's, 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 um, there's more of this stuff. I mean, and, and it is, it's, it's shocking to me. Uh, if I can find this next chart, hold on, let me see. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, this brings us to the dollar, right? And and that's the something that that everybody's focused on the dollar. Um, and like everything in this day and age, there are two very distinct camps. There's the king dollar guys, and we had a a, a uh, last week, uh, earlier this week, sorry, with uh, Brent Johnson and Luke Cromwell duking it out over which uh, which way this is going to go. Um, you and I, I think, are in the same place on the dollar once again but just just talk through this chart and, and what your view of where the dollar goes from here is because it's uh it's the biggest question on everybody's mind at the moment well i guess this chart and the one that showed uh interest rates versus the deficit relative to gdp are really the the whole story instead of rates being the valve for our policy sins the dollar has always been the valve so in contrast to the sort of uh, standard perception that rising deficits are 
really bad for interest rates. They've actually been good in terms of treasury rates, um, but bad for the dollar. That has been the valve for our sins. And it makes sense because we are such a tremendously levered economy that we just can't handle the truth, as it were, when it comes to higher rates. So, you know, when we get into a situation, and we, we've seen this so many times just in the last decade, where rates start to back up a little bit, you know, the treasury yield gets to two and a half, or God forbid, 3%, and then a wheel falls off somewhere, you know, the energy bubble busts, or, you know, uh, so I think what we've discovered is that we don't have a tolerance for any significant increase in rates, and the dollar has become the valve for this angst, as it were, over our uh, profligate fiscal policy. So I, what I come back to is in that chart of the foreign uh, holdings of treasuries versus the Fed's account is that we're reaching a place now where, again, the Fed is the marginal lender uh, and the government is the marginal spender. So is this an inspiring dynamic for the rest of the world? And to me, it just seems like it isn't. Uh, and we're going to have to deal with this issue as that custody account continues to drop. And it's not temporary. It's not part of just the coronavirus response. This is a shift in their appetite for our paper. It's a shift away from globalization in general. Um, and what are the implications of that for the dollar and our ability to finance these deficits absent continued Fed support? Well, in, in a normally functioning world, the, the solution is higher rates, right? You want people to buy your paper, you pay them more for taking it. But obviously that, again, it's not that a, can't really happen at this point. Yeah. It's, not, it's not an option, um, Absolutely. So which, which, which brings us nicely to this, right? I mean, you and I have spent way too much time talking about this mm -hmm. um, with each other over the years, but this, um, uh, I think it was Kirill Sokolov said uh, last week, you know, all roads lead to gold. Uh -huh. And it doesn't matter what happens almost on a daily basis now, there's something else happens that tells me that nobody in the world owns enough gold. You know, and, and you know, the Fed have supposedly the biggest stockpile of it in the world. They sure as hell don't have enough. Um, Talk about your thoughts on gold and, and how this plays out in the gold market. Well, uh, I guess when you come back to this idea of the dollar being under pressure and suddenly the rest of the world not wanting to vendor finance our paper and you're left with just the Fed as the money, literally printing bills off the uh, printing press to buy treasuries, uh, the only outlet for that is gold. I mean, you need to get into a hard money alternative to protect your purchasing power at that point. But I think it really gets to the larger picture of what's going to happen to fiat currencies in general, because it's not just the U.S. whose central bank is de facto monetizing uh, government debt. It's going to be all over. It already is all of the developed world economies. So you're taking all of the major currencies and basically just printing them infinitely. And right now the idea is this is just a temporary situation and we're all gonna come out in a couple months from now and go back to a more normal, more responsible monetary policy. 
Um, I have real doubts about that. Um, and so does gold, apparently, which is clearly sniffed out that this is, you know, not just temporary. Um, so, but this kind of brings me, I'm jumping to the end of the, you know, the Trump card, but basically, I don't know how we finish getting, how we finish out this whole process with uh, the major developed economies wantonly printing money um, without it really ushering us toward the end of this whole fiat currency regime. And that's- well, I, I, No, I, I mean, I, I brought this quote up, which, which you wrote, um, I think right after the election when, when Trump got elected, right? And, it, and it's, you were talking about how likely he was to, per that question that we had earlier on from Kyle, right. to default, right? Yeah. And you know, when, when you read this, uh, and I'll just leave, I'm not going to read it through because it, it turns this into an audio book, but, yeah. but it, 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 you know, it's absolutely right. I mean, we're reaching that point. We're reaching the point where are we at the end of the road, either for fiat currencies, for the U.S.'s uh, place at the middle of the financial system, um, you know, on those really big picture ideas, how do you see the system resolving itself from it how do you see the end game is it default like this is there some magical way out of this because i'm i've racked my brains and i can't find the magical bullet it seems as though a default of sorts mm -hmm. is is likely but from what you've from what you wrote here and the way it's gone since then i mean it's like looking at a crystal ball but it it, it could be a, a a default that trump decides to take rather than is imposed upon right, him because he feels right. like he holds all the cards um, well, I think that it would not surprise me in any way for him to hold out the threat, at least, that he is going to want China to forgive the trillion dollars in debt that we owe them as some form of recompense for the virus. You know, if you think back to the idea that he wanted Mexico to pay to build the wall, to me, it doesn't seem even remotely inconceivable that he would want China to pay for the impact of the coronavirus. And, you know, I think it would just be a threat that he would hold out there. I don't think it would ever come to that because, frankly, it doesn't really accomplish anything. They're trillion dollars in debt. We were already talking about a four trillion dollar deficit this year, you know, so it's that's more uh, just sort of to put the idea out there. But that idea, I think, is going to be put on the table and more people are going to start to discuss, serious people are going to start to discuss how are we going to work our way out of this and how are all of the uh, developed world economies going to grapple with the massive amount of debt now that they're facing. Um, and I, again, come back to the idea that the only way that aging uh, you know, demographically challenged, highly indebted, developed world economies can get out of this is just to print money like crazy because deflation is not an option for them. They they have to inflate away the the real uh, burden of this debt. But if we all do it at the same time, and we uh, have this race to the bottom, at some point the creditors, which are really China and other EM uh, nations, are going to say, look we're not schmucks. We see what you're doing over there uh, and we're not having it. So I think 
it's going to be interesting from a political standpoint to see how this works out. I think uh, there's now a sense of um, skepticism uh, about China's role in the globe and, and whether they really are a friendly nation and whether we should be having uh, outsourcing our production there, much less of critical things like pharmaceuticals. So I think that this will become a discussion and the debate between the developed world debtors and the emerging world creditors like China is going to come to the center. Uh, and I do believe that I don't know, Grant, how it how the pieces move exactly on the chessboard, but I think at the end, it does come back to gold because if they're going to demand a hard you know, payment in real money, it's gonna to have to come back to a hard asset tether, going back to a gold standard or, or something along those lines. And the Trump card that I wrote about was that in theory, anyway, the U.S. has the largest gold reserve out there. So if we did get to this point, as dark and dire as this all sounds to talk about the end of fiat money, we have that trump card. Um, so at least we can put ourselves on a stronger footing than the rest of the world. Well, this, you know, this, this, this is essentially we're talking about uh, in some ways, the, the, the debt jubilee that everyone is kind of trying to figure out, right? I mean, when I think that through, even I, I can see how this gets floated as a trial balloon. Trump, uh, you know, at, at a press conference, just an off-the-cuff remark, you know, you, maybe we make China pay for the virus right. or something, right? It's just a just to see what it's out there. But I can't get past the fact that as soon as you start any kind of serious discussion about, well, maybe we could default the treasuries, I, I, from there to panic to everybody trying to get out of the theater. <laughs> I mean, I guess the, I, under cover of being able to purchase unlimited assets that the Fed have now, maybe you can have that conversation and you just keep hoovering up. But we've already seen the Fed's balance sheet go through five trillion yesterday, through six trillion, this morning, through six trillion. Right. Where do you think the Fed's balance sheet goes oh, God. at this point? I mean, I, <laughs> when we talked I, about I've, this on Monday, we got up to 12 trillion. <laughs> without breaking a sweat. Not um, quite. That seems now. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, it's interesting. Just as a quick aside, one thing that I'm starting to watch now is the credit default swap uh, pricing for U.S. And not surprisingly, yesterday, after the Fed made its whole bazooka uh, salvo, uh, the uh, credit default swaps on investment grade and high-yield paper came down and on the US, they went up. So that's gonna be, you know, that will really be something to watch moving forward because we're taking all the risk onto the Fed's balance sheet uh, to the benefit of the risky corporations and the detriment of the Fed and the dollar, one would presume. Um, so uh, now, I'm sorry, I lost where we were. No, <laughs> I no, no. wrapped in that. <laughs> <laughs> no, we were just talking about the, the Fed's balance sheet, right? With five, six, oh, yeah. we talked healthy. about 12. Right, right. I mean, it, well, it we seems to me that 20, 25, 30, I mean, pick a number, right? I mean, we haven't even gotten to the pension thing, which in theory, they've sort of backstopped maybe with this stuff. But the total U.S., uh, the credit market here is, uh, the debt market, 44 
trillion. And so the Fed's balance sheet right now is six trillion as of last night. You can pick a number anywhere between here and there. Between the two. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I guess, and the, and the pension thing, which is another. Well, let, let, let's, I, this was something that I've, I've been saving because you and I have talked about this again a lot and, and the stuff, the work you've done on the pension situation um, is fantastic, but it, and it's such a big problem. But again, it's one of those problems that's a little just arcane enough for right. people to kind of read the headline and go, ooh, that sounds bad, but it's probably not a problem for another 30 years. Right. To, to talk about the situation that the pension industry is in with underfundings and, and what that means, because I, I think it's one of the most important things people should be understanding. Well, it would be great if we had timely indicators like we do on the Fed's balance sheet about the state of pensions, because you can get monthly updates on the corporate uh, underfunding status, but that's just a tiny, tiny portion of the total. So I have to wait for the Federal Reserve to make with its quarterly analysis. But at the end of last year, which is the latest data, uh, the total public and private pension funding deficit was, I think, $5.3 trillion. Um, that, just for context, has gone straight up. It's gone up. The deficit has gotten worse as the stock market had its longest bull run in history. Corporate credit spreads collapsed to the tightest levels. And, you know, we had a, a record run in financial assets, and yet the funding gap has mushroomed to $5.3 trillion. And the reason why is partially that uh, the rate against which they're discounting their future liabilities, which tends to track the treasury, has been pushed lower and lower. Um, but also because of that, these pensions have had to take an enormous amount of risk. They're the ones, they were the marginal buyers of all of the most toxic paper out there. You know, levered loans with no covenants, sure, we'll take some of those. Um, you know, invest in, is it unicorn stocks through private equity that have no business and manage to lose a billion dollars a month? You know, we'll, we'll sign us up for that. So these are the guys who you know that whatever the number is now, it's multiples of what it was. I, I mean, I can imagine probably at present we're, we're gotta be over six or seven trillion in terms of the funding deficit. When we went through both the dot-com bust and then again, the global financial crisis, if you average what happened to the pension situation then, they doubled. Um, and so if we started at five and we go to 10, so that's just the pension. That's before we get into all the other uh, holes in the dike that the Fed is trying to support. But what I think is really fascinating and underappreciated about the pension thing, and the reason why, like you said, it's, it's viewed as arcane and, and mostly an issue that isn't immediate. You know, we can, that's down the road. Um, and if we tweak a couple assumptions here and there, we'll be fine. The problem is that the bulk of that deficit is at the state and local level. I think four trillion of the 5.3 trillion is state and local. And state and local governments are required to run balanced budgets almost without exception. Um, so when they have to commit money to shoring up their pensions, it has an immediate economic impact. It, it requires them to either cut spending or raise taxes, 
whatever countercyclical uh, policies they have to do uh, to shore that up. So what I worry about, and I think the Fed has finally addressed via its backstopping of the muni market, is that um, just as we saw in the global financial crisis, when they passed that recovery act to get us out of the crisis and the government at the federal level was pumping, what was it, 800 billion in stimulus, that which seems positively puny now, um, all of that stimulus is completely zapped by state and local restraints. So the federal stimulus um, was more than offset by belt tightening at the state and local level because they have no choice. They can't run balance, uh, anything but balanced budget. So anyway. Well, I, I mean, I, that, that rule seems ripe for changing though. You know, if, if, right. I mean, it's, a, it's a stroke of a pen, right? Yeah, yeah, you don't need to yeah. run. I mean, this is, this is exactly the problem the EU is going through, right? I mean, this is the whole thing, right? You 3%. Is the is the maximum right. deficit you're allowed? Um, they've let everybody get away with it for a while, but they're trying to be hard. It it doesn't take much to change that, right? Temporary, once more, but change it they can, I guess, and they'll have to. Yeah, the problem is, I would think you can't change the people who are coming to the door to collect those pensions. Those people are coming. No, that, of course, yeah. So you can pull all kinds of financial uh, engineering, uh, you know, tricks, but at the end of the day. Every, you've got more and more uh, people retiring who are coming to collect pensions that just aren't there. And that really, if it was going to be a problem at $5 trillion, God forbid, you know, at $10 trillion, what's going to happen? I guess the one silver lining you could say is that uh, people are going to have to stay in the workforce longer because they now have seen this destruction to both their income and their savings. So maybe they're not going to be retiring as soon as they thought. So yeah, maybe that's a positive. Yeah, yeah. Oh, great. Gosh. But you know, everything we've kind of talked about um, brings us round to, well, to two places. One, I, again, I, I just keep coming back to gold, but that's as, as some sort of asset or as a portfolio allocation. But this idea of a debt jubilee, which it seems whether it's a, a, a and everybody defaults at the same time or they forgive the debt or whatever it may be. Have you thought that through how that might play out? I asked so many people this question and I've, I mean, no one's really got it figured out yet. I just wonder what your, your, your two senses on this idea, how it might work. I, I haven't really, because I, I guess I focus more on what is China going to do? Are, are they going to be a willing participant in a debt jubilee? I, I don't know. I guess I don't. I feel like there's the geopolitical moves on the chessboard are beyond me, but yeah. I, I think that there there are going to be. You know, you get between Russia and China as an alliance, and I don't think uh, it's going to end as neatly as that. As you know, we have some kind of Bretton Woods meeting where everyone comes together and says, all right, we agree we're going to erase all this and shake hands and walk away and pretend like it never happened. I, I just, I have a hard time picturing it being that easy, but. Well, I, I agree. I mean, if you think about Bretton Woods came out of World War II when everyone had been fighting, we're trying to come together, right? Now we're in the completely opposite situation. Yeah. Everyone's been together and they're trying to pull apart. So I, I, I agree. It's been very difficult to, 
to reach some kind of agreement as everybody goes down the nationalist route and, and tries to you know demonize other countries and stuff. So I, I, I can't see how it happens, but I don't, you know, I don't have a solution to it, unfortunately. Yeah, the other question that has, has popped up in the thread a few times um, uh, is Japan. You know, when we look at where we are in, in the West, we look at the US uh, and Europe and the UK and all these Western democracies, they're all kind of following that Japan playbook. I think Mark Yusko's kind of charted and everyone's like 12 years behind Japan. Um, the reason why Japan has been able to do this for so long uh, and why other countries can't do it. I, I've got my own thoughts, but I'll, I'll let you chip in first and then I'll, I'll either pick holes or agree with what you say. <laughs> I mean, the reason to me is I, I only think of one reason and that is it's in, internally financed, whereas the US relies on everybody else to finance our debt. The, Japan doesn't do that or didn't for most of yep. it time. Um, and so if it were to print yen like crazy as it has just to uh, you know expand its government programs there's no one who's standing out there saying hey you're not doing that with you know you're not going to debase the currency that uh, you're going to pay me back with so there is no uh any kind of disciplining mechanism for them whereas for us yeah. the dollar will be the disciplining mechanism yeah i'm, I'm in on the same but no, I, I was exactly the same. They, a, they were doing it in a vacuum. Um, they were the only people doing it. And so even though they were the second biggest economy in the world, they could kind of be carried. B, they were internally financed. And C, at the time, the, the world was growing, right? There, there was organic real growth in, in places like China and India in double digits. I mean, so there was, they could be carried, but I just, I don't see how it's, how it's possible now. Um, so look, just to, just to finish up, the, the consumer. I mean, this is again the one of the places, one of the weak points that you've been focused on for such a long time. Um, the, the the problems that the consumer had before going into this, when they were, you know, either taking on credit at the margin or outspending and outdoing. What is this now? The the virus shutdown and the and the potential slow return afterwards. What does that, how does that change your theory on the consumer? In fact, you better lay out your theory on the consumer first and then, and then tell us how it's changed so people that haven't heard you talk about it can get both parts of it. Well, I guess I sort of alluded to it in the discussion of the post-crisis behavior shift on the part of consumers. And uh, right after the housing bubble bust, there was a lot of talk about the new normal. And I feel like that's really what I've been seeing in terms of the consumer since 2008. Um, although most people have long since forgotten about the new normal, I was seeing it in all the data, like, as I mentioned, the increase in savings rate, despite the fact that their assets were actually saving for them, uh, in part, both, you know, home prices were going up and, and financial assets. So to the extent that we were seeing a, a predilection to save more and borrow less, Going into this episode, one imagines that that uh, has only been intensified. The problem is, of course, you get the people who now have to borrow out of distress. Um, and we did see, I mean, it's early, uh, an early number, but we saw an increase in the consumer credit uh, for last month. Um, so that's even before we got into this episode, really. Um, but you were seeing distress borrowing, obviously. Uh, and I, I guess 
the other factor is going to be to what extent we do see a second down leg in the stock market uh, that takes another toll on 401ks and psychology uh, and that that just further intensifies this need to save out of income, AKA forego consumption. Uh, so I, I just have a hard time, my thinking about the consumer, I guess, in answer to your question, hasn't improved. If anything, it's become more worrisome. And, and the fact that their behavior may now be mirrored by the corporate sector just makes me that much more concerned about the trajectory of growth coming out of this and what it means for the potential exit from these extreme monetary and fiscal policies. I guess the long story short, I don't think they are temporary by any stretch of the imagination. And we'll be looking at a Federal Reserve balance sheet that's double digits for a long time and federal deficits that have a five handle, you know, rather than a one handle. Right. Um, for a long time as well. Well, I mean, it's... Uh, yeah. it's On that right note... The, 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 new, <laughs> the new normal of people staying home doesn't really affect you and I, because we both stay home right. the time anyway, doing all this stuff, so it's fine. But look, I mean, Steph, um, for, for people out there, and there will be a few, I've had so many emails saying how much we're looking forward to hearing from you. There will be a few people that, that haven't seen you before, um, but you, uh, from me to you, thank you for the help you've given me with, with my work because it's uh, <laughs> the stuff you do is, is fantastic and you've been so way out in front of all this stuff for such a long time. Um, and, and I know a lot of people out there will thank me for thanking you on their behalf because you've done such a, an amazing job. So thank you. Thank you. If I'm way ahead, I'm still three steps behind you. Yeah, I just I just muted you so no one can, no one can hear you. I just muted you. Uh, stay stay. Stay safe. Uh, have a great Easter. Thanks for doing this on Good Friday. Um, I don't know if there's any eggs hidden in your apartment, but uh, I hope you find them. Uh, thank and, you. And I'll see you soon at some okay. point, I hope. Yes. Thanks, Steph. Okay. All right. Take care. Bye.